Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to a London-based journalist, broadcaster and editor. For the last 10 years, she's written for publications such as The Guardian, Vice, The Independent and Fader, covering culture, technology and politics. Her new book is All the Houses I've Ever Lived In. It's an engaging coming-of-age story that shines a light on the housing crisis in the UK. Kieran Yates, welcome to Monocle Reads. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here and to read your fascinating book, which really reflects, I think, the situation that that many of us in Britain are in, which is uh, which is where we live, which is obviously an integral part of anybody's life. And so, really, I'd just like to to start off by asking you about your personal relationship to the home. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I sort of I love. I love that people are kind of reading and framing the book that way because it really is an interrogation of home and our personal relationship with, you know, these places that are not always sort of designed for us to make home in. And, um, you know, that's certainly been my experience. You know, my experience is both about moving, about the kind of psychic breaks of how you make life between the cracks of a housing crisis, but also how you develop this kind of idea or sort of muscle memory about how to make home. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, my I mean, my personal relationship with home is, you know, really, really thinking about how you build it. And in some ways, I'm a real product of, of my parents. You know, my mum is somebody who, you know, for many years was really exercising that muscle about, OK, this is how we make home with the objects we bring with us or doing the best with what we have. And she worked in the Marriott Hotel. And so she also had this really interesting relationship with how other people were bringing objects to make home with them, with their spaces as well. You know, she she sort of cleaned rooms after and, you know, it had this really interesting perspective of how people were living these kind of transient moments. And I think I picked up a lot from that, from kind of following her to work. Mm. You describe one object that you had in one of your homes, which was a kind of gilded plastic and velvet tissue box, and why that actually became this this object of really huge significance. Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of uh, South Asian people from that diaspora who are living in the UK but actually you know, live across the world have this very emotive relationship with what you're describing, the fake plastic tissue box. And, you know, it speaks to our migration histories. It speaks to the things that we bring with us and kind of root us back to sort of an, the imagined idea of home. And the way in which a lot of immigrant interior aesthetics are built or, you know, sort of become uniform is through sharing networks. You know, you come into the country and, you know, maybe existing members of the community lend you a tablecloth or they lend you a tissue box or they, you know, lend you something and then you go to everybody's house and you realise there's a uniformity to how these things look. And mm. so, you know, there is, there's a really important relationship with that, especially for sort of migrant communities. And, and you can see how this is represented in pop culture, you know, in, in Steve McQueen's Small Axe, you know, the, the sort of details of that living room is, is very considered. You know, when you go to sort of theatre and see plays like Nine Night, which I saw a few years ago, you can see the doilies have been expertly and precisely thought about because they conjure up, you know, these lives that are lived in these living rooms in the way that, you know, Victorian parlours existed historically. And Mm. this is where life is lived and they become an area of safety and and real pride. 
I mean, you write that the book sees homemaking and the pursuit of love as essential and employs the notions of self-care, where self-care means finding and locating home in any form as a means of resistance. And you actually start the book about resistance, about how a history of activism got us to this point. So tell us about Beresford. Yeah, so my family, my grandparents kind of came to this country and you know, stayed in, in lots of sort of temporary precarious housing and then bought a house in Burstwood Road in Southall. And it's, you know, a historically significant site because this would, you know, then be where Southall riots took place in the 1980s and when my mother was growing up. And so it was a real locus of resistance, of kind of conversations about race and identity and class politics And what came from that were migrant communities organising via things like mortgage committees where, you know, members of the community would put a pound in a pot every week and, you know, they'd raise that to build a deposit kind of in resistance to racist bank lenders who simply wouldn't lend to communities of colour. And so, you know, this helped lots of communities get a stake in in the local community, but it also meant that it could pay for translation services, which obviously impacts access to housing and create community spaces where we could say, okay, we'll go and gather at somebody's house. And so there's lots of examples of people really resisting their local housing association, whether that is like mums or the Black Parents Network saying, we're all going to go down and we're going to take our children and sit outside Tower Hamlets Council and we're not going to move until someone agrees to speak to us, Mm. which was really effective to, you know, people who could drive or have a car saying, right, everybody get in the car, I'm just going to drive, I'm going to drive people. <laughs> and there's lots of examples in the archive of actually having a mate with a car being very useful so you can just really show up in numbers. And, mm. you know, lots of fights, lots of housing fights were won that way. Yeah. Now, your parents divorced and you moved with your mother and your brother into social housing. And you talk about how one has to live with social housing negligence, exactly what you were describing about resistance it. But so many people still, I mean, are living in social housing that really is not fit for purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And then it becomes your responsibility to share the stories of beauty and joy and friendship and community, which is what, you know, I've tried to do. I kind of, I focus on, you know, being really mesmerised about the, the pebble dash when I was younger, you know, kind of seeing sort of it as, as kind of crystals through a young child's eyes. And of course, we now know that Pebble Dash really historically has existed to conceal shoddy brickwork and cracks in the brickwork. And it's actually now so unpopular that it can reduce the value of a home by 5% minimum. So, you know, all of these things that you find very beautiful when you're a child, you realise are, you know, connected to a kind of a negligence in governance or from the state. Mm. But um, it really... I think that's why it's really important to share these stories of like, well, this is where music culture is built. This is where artistic communities are built. This is where there's so much joy and and richness and life and that is often lost from the conversation. Yeah. I mean, you in that chapter, you talk about your Jamaican aunt who lived next door, who'd, who'd uh, share food with you. But you do go on about music. You say this is why this proximity really is one of the reasons that music's been able to mutate and evolve so effectively in this country. And that kind of picks up on something you've been working on earlier because you made a great documentary for Radio 4 about estate music. Yeah, you know, and, and it speaks to the architecture of the place, you know, Social housing, certainly the social housing that I lived in in West Ealing, had very thin walls, which enabled a lot of music to, you know, leak and escape through, which was really beautiful and really important to developing my ear. You know, and that's the first time I heard 
kind of Bashman or, you know, gospel music. You know, my mum played Mariah Carey and, and Bollywood. And I heard all of these sounds and that's still a way that... You know, people share music. Of course, that's where people have house parties. That's where people historically in the 1970s were playing their radiograms and then later their CD players and, you know, and so on and so forth. And these spaces become these preserved, almost club spaces sometimes for people who feel like they're outside of, you know, mainstream clubs because of racist policies historically. But they also mean that you're sonically connected to your neighbours. And I, I remember you know, watching EastEnders and hearing the, like, doof doofs just a second out of time <laughs> because everybody kind of in my locale was listening, was watching it at the yeah. same time. And, you know, when you have this sonic relationship with a place, it's very physical and very visceral and very beautiful and it kind of sets you up to think about music in a, a different way, which is why music is such a component of the book. Mm. Now, for most of us, the, the very idea of home it revolves around safety. It's the one place where you can feel safe and secure. But sadly, that's actually not the case for everybody. And you have a chapter about this. You're talking about short-term accommodation. And you also look back at Victorian England and how those houses were built and how actually unsafe homes now still have some of that same architecture. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because, of course, we know the Victorian parlour was so sort of important to kind of the society about to kind of show your wealth and show your class perspective. And the sort of plant du jour at the time was the Aspidistra because, you know, it could survive under the quite brutal Victorian conditions of low light. Mm. You know, it's a but, wonderful George Orwell book, the Keep the Aspidistra Flying. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and its landlady, Mrs. Wispeach, is, is <laughs> awful. Um, but, you know, this you know this really speaks to where we are now. There's a direct connection because as a result, we now have the oldest housing stock in Europe. And this makes way for lots of disrepair, you know, from mould and damp, but also structural disrepairs and, and, you know, lots of things like that. So, you know, as much as we have this like very beautiful history with, you know, the way that we've made a home historically, whether that is from kind of the proliferation of neck curtains and Nottingham lace factories and, you know, writing and, you know, Dickens and Elliot. Not that Dickens was always that complimentary about our, our London's housing. <laughs> but, you know, there is a, a kind of a long literary tradition and I think that that has really played into how we think about where we place value today. But of course, the idea and, and the dream of living in some of this Victorian housing is, you know, is, is not true in practice because lots of these structures and, and places are really not fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, of course, is privilege within housing. How does that work? Well, I think the, you know, privilege plays out because, you know, governments over the last 10, 20, 30 years have really spoken to the British population as if they're separate interest groups. They've really pitted renters, those in receipt of social housing, those in receipt of temporary accommodation and homeowners as separate interest groups who are not kind of fighting the same battle. And of course, we know that's not true. Mm. And so I think the the way that I think about homeowners now is to say, look, it's useful to be transparent, but it's also useful for you to see yourselves as someone who is integral to the conversation about housing activism or, you know, the fight for better housing in the future. And I do think sometimes homeowners can feel a little bit guilty because, of course, housing is sold to us as a luxury commodity. It's sold to us as very 
rare. The housing crisis makes winners and losers of the crisis. And if you feel like you're somebody who has won by whatever means, whether that is, you know, through inheritance or exceptional circumstances or whatever, it can be very difficult to think, oh, maybe I don't want to, you know, go to a London's Renton Union meeting because I might be seen as the enemy. But that's not true. Mm. You know, there is kind of room to distribute any privilege we have and really say, okay, well, you were in a position of uh, maybe security or greater stability than the 17 and a half million people in this country who don't have access to a safe, secure, stable home. So maybe that's you're in a perfect position to say, let's advocate for better renters' rights. Mm, mm. You know, and so I think that, you know, we, we should think about privilege in that way. But it's also important for us not to individualise the crisis and say, well, when home is sold to us as a luxury commodity, it makes it much more difficult to advocate for it as a right for everybody. And we live in a moment where home really is seen as a luxury commodity. Mm. But here in Britain, we seem to be quite obsessed by home ownership. If you look, I don't know, Germany or various other parts of, of, of Europe or indeed New York or anywhere like that, people rent and that's what's expected. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a particularity to the British obsession with home ownership which has its historical roots as far back as, you know, our history of land ownership, of kind of the rigidity of our class system and aristocracy to the royal family, who, of course, are, you know, sort of famous landlords, and also to, you know, colonial exploit. And so homeownership has always been tied into the idea of kind of wealth status, class, and the idea of well, it's interesting. I was going to say this idea of social mobility, but actually social mobility has changed so much now that, you know, I talked to Joe Littler in the book who kind of writes about meritocracy. Uh, she's an academic and sociologist. And she says now, you know, one of the, the biggest identifiers or markers of class is whether or not you're a homeowner, whereas maybe 10 years ago it was whether or not you had a degree. And so we we live in a moment that is really changing so much and your rights to to kind of talk about, you know, European examples or kind of examples further afield. But I I despair. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. It's like, you know, people always, you know, often talk about Finland and, you know, how successful they've been at eradicating or at least, you know, moving towards eradicating street homelessness or, you know, Berlin's culture of renting. But I feel like there is such a kind of psychological sort of work that has to be done in the British psyche, in the British cultural, social and economic imagination for us to even move there a little bit, that I think that the first conversation we have to have after house building is really about how we ensure good quality long-term renting for people who rent in this country. Mm. Back to your own personal story, because then you moved to a little Welsh village. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. So my my mum, Nisa and an auntie, uh, who lived in Wales, and when our rent really went up at a place that we were privately renting in West Ealing, we were completely priced out and evicted, and so we had nowhere to go. And after quite a long period of sleeping on, you know, sofas and floors, we went to a, a sort of a, a Welsh cottage in Mid Wales, in Powys. And it was, you know, it was... A really interesting sort of social and cultural shock for me as a young person, as a, as a child. And I write about getting used to, you know, the sort of rural quiet as somebody who was who was grown up, held by urban noise and what this does to our bodies and what this does to our ability to see and, and think about even things like green space. 
So I, I didn't realise that horizons were so big. I didn't realise that, you know, this kind of accessibility to green space really was for somebody like me because I'd grown up in the city where I was really, you know, held by concrete and, you know, it didn't have gardens and, and those sorts of things. And so I sort of learn about the natural world in real time. But I also believe that we're born naturalists. So it spoke to something innate in me. And then when I was revisiting this and the writing of this chapter, it really took me to, you know, this kind of reportage about who has access, who doesn't have access, you know, how successful the idea of the Victorian Park was, how successful, you know, our relationship with kind of the learning and feeling like we have ownership over green space has been, especially for marginalised communities. And that was really interesting. But yeah, I, I fell in love with bluebells and uh, lots of music and he played my CD Walkman in, in sort of forests and walked around before we had to move again. And where you moved to was a place, in fact, that you were not meant to live. And you have a whole chapter on living in spaces that weren't designed for habitation. I particularly love the story about your finger in the car showroom. (laughs) (laughs) So my family moved to a car showroom. Uh, So it was the top floor, uh, single floor of a car showroom, which wasn't really designed to house a family. But, you know, it was kind of designed for sort of workers to sort of, you know, hang out and be, but, but, you know, we were desperate and and we lived there. And, yeah, it was in various stages of disrepair. Lots of, like, copper wires gave me interesting looking burns and, you know, some some holes in the the living room. And I'd sort of put my finger in there and and think about, you know, people selling the cars downstairs and seeing my finger, like, emerge from the ceiling. And and sometimes you could hear, you know, you could hear a sale being agreed downstairs and you could smell the the turtle wax car plan shampoo, which, you know, still really takes me back there now when I think about it. But, you know, in that chapter, I also speak to people who are in various various places that are not designed to be lived in, like shipping containers, which are offered by government as temporary accommodation. And there's a range of reasons why they're not fit for purpose. But they really speak to the desperation and the sheer lack of housing stock and and reverence we have for people in really desperate and vulnerable situations. But, you know, we you sort of open the papers. When I was writing this book, I, you know, I was doing Twitter searches for people who were living in sort of bed in a shed type living or shipping containers or, you know, wherever. And after a while, I just, I just had to stop because it was so overwhelming and so depressing, so viscerally depressing because we're hearing these stories all the time and it's really important for us to to just not normalise them, mm. you know. I mean, they say that, that moving is up there with bereavement and divorce in terms of stress, anxiety, depression and, and, and so on. And you, and you write about this as a child. You say moving as a child is to lose control over the small world you've built for yourself. And while I enjoyed the variety of people and places, it was not always easy. The lack of agency made a negotiator out of me. It's hard for children. It's also hard for grown-ups, though, isn't it? I mean, it's so stressful, that very idea of a move. Completely. You know, you you have to ask questions about, you know, what you take with you, what you leave. You know, you have to do these kind of mourning about all of these little losses that you're experiencing in real time. You know, as a child, I negotiated with my mum, like, if I do very well at this, can we stay? You know, if I stay with my friend for a while, can we stay? And then you get older and you don't have anyone to negotiate with other than your landlord, who, you know, are famously not the best people to negotiate with often. And so, you know, there is there is a lot of things happening to you psychically, but also to your body. And there is this real desire to be rooted. 
you know, and I'm somebody who, you know, tried to extract the joy of meeting new communities and going to new schools and meeting new people. But in the writing of this book, you know, I really saw this with adult eyes and was like, this, you know, this was really difficult. And this is something that is increasingly difficult to so many people in this country who are having to move and who are having to reckon with that lack of control, mm. you know, sort of month to month on a weekly basis. I mean, the book's only been out for a couple of weeks. But already, you know, people are messaging me all the time saying, oh, I've moved 20 times. Oh, I've moved every year for the last five years. You know, this is this is the experience for so many about, you know, in Britain today. And people are negotiating everything from how they get their deposit back to the things they leave behind and the tchotchkes they bring with them. I mean, the book goes through sort of sleeping on floors, living above shops, all of that. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. What's your current living situation? So I, as part of the book advance, thankfully, I bought with my partner very recently. And it's been really interesting kind of grappling with homeownership in that way. Because probably, you know, I think I talk about this all the time. You know, I, I feel like I'm not sure whether this was whether I would repeat this was something I would do again. And, you know, there's a couple of things to say here, which is one, homeownership is still, for so many people in this country, the most stable option, especially for somebody like me who has spent a life of kind of disconnection and moving. But even middle class homeowners are not being catered to. Of course, they have a lot more privilege than the majority of this country, but the housing crisis are not even working for them. And so you wonder who it really is working for, which ultimately are property developers, landlords and the 1%. And so that's been really interesting to experience firsthand because I had this dream of home ownership. I had this idea that, you know, I would finally stay still and feel stable and, you know, that isn't the case. Mm. There is kind of, you know, precarity and disruption built into that. But also I know that, you know, I'm somebody, I'm, you know, I'm a working class person, like many of my working class peers who own, who was enabled that thanks to very exceptional circumstances, which is almost impossible to replicate. So, so many people in this country, if you're working class particularly, are able to, you know, engage in home ownership because of a raise at work, because they were lucky enough to stay in their job, you know, in a kind of historic crisis of the labour market. You know, maybe their partner's generational wealth. Maybe there was a kind of an inheritance that was unexpected. There's all these kind of exceptional ways in, which means that the system isn't working for anybody. Mm. And so, yeah, I sort of, I grapple as much as I delight in the idea of home ownership. I, you know, I love the idea of, of feeling still for a while. I love the idea of having some agency living in the first house I've ever lived in where I've been able to paint a wall and being able to like make those aesthetic and, and home decisions and think about how to fill my home with love and to invite people to stay like people have invited me to stay when I've needed somewhere to stay. You know, my family were kind of unofficially fostered by lots of people who were homeowners when we needed it. And that taught me real lessons about love and kindness and friendship. Mm. But it also made me, you know, it's really made it very clear to me that it's so important for, for us not to acquire castles and raise the drawbridges, you know. It's like, OK, I feel temporarily stable now. That just gives me urgency to say, OK, I can go to a London Renters' Union meeting and advocate for better rights for everybody. I can go and advocate for disrepair claims for everybody. OK, I'm in a position where my cup is full, so I can really use that mm. to push forward. And I think that, you know, that I, I hope that continues for me. But I also, 
you know, I've, I've written a book. I know that this is, I know that this is maybe not promised for me for the long term, and that's okay. Well, it's a great cry for action. It's a great cry to arms, but it's also just a lovely story, and it tells us about your life. It tells us about basic human kindness, and I found it ultimately a really uplifting book. So, Kieran, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Kieran Yates, and the book is called All the Houses I've Ever Lived In. It's published by Simon and Schuster, and it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to producer Nora Hull and studio manager Steph Chungu. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.